Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex, and I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford Computer Science PhD, Harvard MBA, and a Stanford Bioengineering Master's, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. My name is Shad, and I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today is Dr. Alex Ding. He is Executive in Residence and Medical Director at the Office of Health Affairs and Advocacy at Humana, a for-profit health insurance company based in Louisville, Kentucky and is the third largest health insurance provider in the nation. He is clinical assistant professor of radiology at the University of Louisville as well. Alex holds an MS in health and medical sciences from the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley, and a BA in economics from the same university. He also holds an MD from UCSF and an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Alex, thank you for joining us and welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path. Thanks so much for having me on the program today. Awesome. We're, we're super excited, Alex. So, um, Alex, you have such an interesting journey so far. Um, can you help us put things into perspective for our audience by talking a little bit more about your story, maybe your upbringing and your journey towards medicine? How and when did you make the decision to go into medicine? Yeah, absolutely. Again, thanks for having me on today. I'm just so excited about the opportunity to sit down and chat with the both of you today. I think the premise of the podcast is an incredibly important and interesting one. I think it is one that is evolving with how people think about the lifespan of their careers. I suspect it's a topic that's going to continue to gather interest. I'm really honored to be a part of that journey with uh, with the both of you and to share my story with your listeners today. Uh, in terms of my upbringing, I consider Cupertino, California, my home. That's where I spent my formative years. It's where I grew up. Of course, uh, most of your listeners probably now know that to be the default time zone of your iPhone, the world headquarters of Apple. But uh, Apple and HP were there when I was growing up, but it definitely was not the same place as it is now. You know, In fact, I would consider it a pretty normal, vanilla, suburban place to grow up. And when I was younger, it was still dotted kind of with apricot orchards all across Santa Clara Valley. And then I also consider the wider San Francisco Bay Area my home. It's where I went to college, graduate school, medical school, the place where I met my wife, got married. And then I left for medical training, and it's a place I returned back to to practice and to start my family as well. And even though I, that's where I consider home, I'm actually an immigrant to this country. I was born and spent my early childhood in Germany. And in terms of my journey toward medicine, I think in many ways it was the conventional path most are accustomed to, but I think uh, in many ways there were some detours along the way as well. You know, for me, I've always loved science and been fascinated by how the human body works. And I felt medicine was such an awesome field that combined scientific background, but applied it toward really meaningful problems. Uh, and then combined that with the privilege of interacting with people in some of the most you know, vulnerable and poignant times in their lives. And I think that really provides such meaning to that work. And I think that's really powerful. And I think there are very few professions that can truly say that. But, you know, kind of more broadly than that, I really loved understanding how things worked. And as I got older, I tried to understand the world, politics, the news, I found that a foundation and a lens of economics really helped me to better understand that. And that's how I got drawn in that direction. 
And so the problem ultimately ended up for me that, you know, I was academically interested in so many different things. You know, you've got the science, the medicine, but also politics, policy and business. And unfortunately, you know, the hard thing for me was because I found so many things interesting, you know, how do you pick and choose? And I think I always had people kind of skeptical that I could put all of these things together into a career, which is, of course, why we're now talking. Alex, I love that journey and that trajectory. And I think one of my favorite books is a biography of Leonardo da Vinci. And I think the author makes a very good case as to the point that the source of da Vinci's innovation and creativity was the fact that he was in so many different spaces and he was able to kind of take innovations from one to the other. And so um, I think it's it's actually quite quite important and appreciate you sharing that. Alex, just building on that point, you have such a fascinating experience. I mean, you spent time in VC and med tech and health policy and finance as well. And you've had training in public health and medicine, business and economics. And so, and so I feel you've touched all the different aspects of healthcare and healthcare systems, which is very exciting. If you can talk us through your decision to kind of pursue the career outside the confines of purely a clinical trajectory, like what was the guiding factors, what's the motivation, and what do you hope to achieve out of that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And maybe, you know, the answer is there's a little bit of column A in terms of having a strategy, maybe a little bit of column B that I'm just kind of scattered all over the place. And I, I think it certainly could look like I'm scattered all over the place. And I think, you know, certainly there's a lot of that in terms of just having that ability to explore and to discover and still perhaps kind of with this mindset of I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Um, you know, but at the same time, I think it is this type of open mindset and putting myself into opportunities to learn and also be uncomfortable, not being the content expert that I feel like has given me this tremendous breadth of being able to explore different facets of healthcare. You know, for me, uh, I think of a way of harnessing my ADD in a productive way, but I think it's really been this variety and constant learning that has kept my career consistently interesting, engaging, and quite frankly, fun. But, you know, to be honest, there is some method to the madness, I guess you could say. You know, there are basically kind of two guiding principles that I do use to help me guide me kind of strategically thinking about where I'm going next. You know, the first, the first is the idea of scalability. So let me just explain that. And I think clinical practice is such a privileged role and the impact you can have on an individual patient can really be profound. Um, I think the challenge with it is just that it doesn't scale very well. You know, I can only take care of or manage so many patients in a given day. And so I've looked for opportunities to take my medical expertise to different parts of healthcare where the work is able to reach much beyond the clinic walls. And that's how I first ended up kind of with an interest in policy and then technology and then business. I think these are all areas where my desire to improve people's health and to have impact on healthcare just scale much better than, um, than clinical practice. Uh, the second principle that I, that I follow is really to think about my own knowledge map and to understand of the multiple and varied aspects of healthcare. You know, what are the areas that I have some gaps and then what can I do to work to fill those gaps? And in fact, you know, that is how I ended up with my current role at a health insurance company. You know, my background was always as a physician, as a clinician, I've always been on the delivery side of healthcare. And so, you know, I, I thought the whole financing side of healthcare, the whole, the whole industry 
of insurance was an area I really did not understand well. And so I purposely made it a point to do something to better understand this whole side of healthcare, which is how I ended up at Humana. Thank you, Alex. Maybe I can reflect a little bit on the point of the knowledge map. I think it's a very interesting point. I, I just hope that our medical education can evolve in a way that allows you to maybe diversify the skills that you gain during medical education beyond a rigid single track. Because there's so many opportunities today in healthcare that require a basis of clinical understanding, but a layer of different skill sets based on the trajectory that you want to go into. So for example, you may do a medical degree and then decide to go into biotech and the skills that you would need to go in that direction may be slightly different from the skills that you would need to go into a job that requires, for example, AI expertise within the clinical space or something in, in biomedical informatics. Same applies to, for example, healthcare policy. So I think in one of the recent episodes, we were discussing how the medical degree itself can transform into a platform degree, such as the MBA uh, or the PharmD, where you do that degree, but it doesn't really limit you to a single career path, but it opens up opportunities in many diverse career paths that have like an underlying basis of specific skills. So certainly appreciate your point on that, Alex. Maybe shifting gears a little bit to your experience in the Navy. So you've spent nine years in the Navy and you, you held the title of Lieutenant Commander. Can you tell us more about your time in the Navy? Why did you decide to join? And maybe if you can elaborate a little bit on the skills that you were able to transfer between Navy, between serving the nation by being in the Navy and serving patients by being in the hospital. Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned earlier, I'm an immigrant to this country and I was naturalized as a U.S. citizen. And, you know, as such, I feel a great debt of gratitude to this country uh, for the tremendous amounts of opportunities that I've been afforded and really uh, how how much it's welcomed me and my family and um, been a place where we've been able to thrive. And as such, I've always felt the need to give back in service, which is one thing I feel like I am able to do as a physician in my day-to-day -day work, in addition to some of my advocacy work. But um, in representing this country and wearing this country's cloth as a member of its armed forces, for me, you know, was just another manifestation of how I was able to show some of this gratitude. And so, you know, as, as you mentioned, I served in the medical corps. I was a reservist as a general medical officer for, for 10 years after I finished my internship, got my medical license and uh, was primarily based out of Newport, Rhode Island. But interestingly, I think what most people say they learn in the military are things like discipline, situational awareness, preparedness, and that's not really what I took away from, from my experience. You know, I actually feel like there's a lot of parallels and similarities of that to medical training as well. And I think where I actually picked up all of those things were in my medical training. And I think that uh, translated well into my time in the Navy as opposed to the other way around. However, you know, there is, I think, one thing that a lot of people don't really think about or recognize. But uh, when you do think about it, you kind of know it to be true. You know, the military is a massive organization and massive organizations have massive amount of bureaucracy. Um, and figuring out to not only kind of navigate through this, to figure out your day-to-day, -day, but even kind of 
figuring out how there might be different ways and routes you could take to get something accomplished, you know, within such a large organization is really the incredibly valuable skill that I picked up. I think it has served me well in trying to be successful in navigating hospitals and health system bureaucracies. And then, of course, now the the massive organization that I work in, which has northward of 100,000 employees. Alex, thank you so much for that. I, I want to bring here a point from previous conversations uh, where many of our guests have highlighted the point that one of the important skills that they've learned from healthcare and that they were able to transfer into domains outside clinical practice is really the commitment to excellence and it's the rigor and being able to do the hard work, even if it requires you to stay up late, even if it requires you to sleep a little amount of time. So that dedication to service, and, and it seems to me it really kind of overlaps in, with your narrative and with your experience moving from the military to medicine to outside to a career that, that combines uh, non-clinical and clinical together. So maybe now I'd love to shift the conversation a little bit towards uh, clinical AI Medical imaging is such a rich medium for uh, applications of machine learning and AI. And, and certainly, if we look five years ago, there was a lot of hype around AI as technology in healthcare, as is expected with any really new groundbreaking technology. And I think it will take us time to understand kind of what are the limitations and to learn how to apply these algorithms effectively. One of the interesting papers that I read recently is by Stanford researcher James Zhu, and he basically took an algorithm that was trained on patient data from one hospital and applied it to another hospital, and there was a drop of 30% in performance. And so he took that 30% and dissected it into the different factors that contributed to that difference in performance. And some of these factors are the different workflows of these hospitals, right? Like different hospitals have different workflows. Uh, some of them are around labeling the, uh, the diagnosis. So one hospital was making the label of the diagnosis based on pathology, whereas the other hospital was making the label based on clinical only. The third big factor was the differences in the demographics of patients and like shifts in the distribution of data. So certainly like I see a lot of potential in technology, but there are limitations there until we get it to a productive pace. So from your experience as a radiologist and having spent a lot of time in policy and VC, would love to know kind of what's your perspective in AI and kind of what do you expect to happen in the next five to 10 years? How can we, as medical doctors, learn to use the technology in the most effective way possible? And how can medical education perhaps accommodate that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And there's so many different facets of it that you've already alluded to. Um, and so I, I think there's a number of things that I, I will say here um, uh, to, to respond to that. I, I think in radiology uh, as a specialty, we pride ourselves as a technology forward and innovative specialty. And in fact, you know, a third of all radiology practices have already deployed AI tools in some way, shape or form. And I do think AI in the long term will transform what we do in medicine, but probably not in the way that the hype has portrayed it to be. You know, I, I think the deployment of AI in healthcare will be similar to what we in radiology saw with the deployment of the PAC system, that is digital imaging. You know, for us, it was a new technological tool that I think saw tremendous benefit for patients, referring physicians, radiologists alike in democratizing images, but also increasing efficiency and accuracy. You know, but it is a technology that fundamentally changed the practice of radiology. You know, we no longer had visitors in the reading room is kind of the central hub for the hospital to gather in. 
some of our work can now be outsourced far and wide, uh, in some ways commoditizing our interpretations. And I think in the end, AI will be another tool in the physician's arsenal. And I, I predict that AI will be kind of a tool that will also fundamentally change the way in which we practice, just like PAX did for radiology, but it comes with the positives and the negatives associated with technological change. You know, I, I think the way in which it has been marketed has been a major unforced error of companies really not understanding who the customer is. I think this hype of replacing a doctor is quite honestly, you know, really poor marketing since uh, what they're essentially doing is kind of antagonizing their own potential customer. Um, but then, you know, the data really shows that if you add the AI with the human, uh, the two of them always outperform, outperform either one alone, you know, but so much of what we hear is hype. And then so much of it is also focused on what's sexy. I really think what we should be doing instead is to focus on the boring and the mundane. You know, no one's going to fight you for that work. No one's going to feel threatened. Um, I think in kind of more generally speaking with AI, it's important not to focus the the algorithm or the tool on doing what a human does well, just incrementally better. But I think we should actually focus that technology on what humans do poorly or humans don't want to do and focus those applications there. Um, so AI in radiology is already kind of used for any number of clinical uses. It's used to identify pneumothorax on chest radiograph, fractures on x-rays, suspicious lesions on mammography, pulmonary nodules on CT. You know, it can increase study sensitivity, provide second opinions, but it can also perform a lot of these tedious tasks, you know, ones that don't require extensive medical training, like comparing disease burden from one study to another over time, segmenting anatomy for surgical planning, quantitating and calculating clinical scores and measurements. And so I think also thinking more broadly than just the clinical applications, it's important to recognize that AI can be applied kind of throughout the entire value chain. Um, you know, for me, it's a medical imaging, but I think anywhere in healthcare, not just kind of at the interpretation phase. So, you know, other areas that we've seen it being used in radiology is to, as an example, it's helps to identify the best test to order for an indication for a specific patient at the time of order entry. It can uh, kind of modulate the radiation requirements that are uh, needed for image acquisition and can provide quality control feedback for acquisition. It can do smart triaging and prioritization of work lists based on kind of predicted critical findings. Um, it can kind of auto-populate and start to write those reports for you, but it can also do a lot of the back office stuff like the coding and the billing functions. And I think in order to drive adoption, there are really a couple of things I want to see AI companies understand. One you've already alluded to is really understanding clinical workflow. I think the other is making sure that they know how to articulate not only a clinical value, but also a business value as well. And I think companies need to focus on increasing trust in the tool, particularly those that are kind of clinically facing use cases. I think that not only includes making sure that the tool is accurate, but I think the explainability of the outputs is really, really critical as well. And I think the last thing I'll say about AI is that, you know, as we anticipate greater use over time, it being a tool, I think physicians should also understand the basics of how these technologies work, similarly to how radiologists need to train in physics to understand how the CT and the MRI machines work. Um, just as you've mentioned, kind of in medical education and even beyond that formal training, I think we need physicians to learn 
uh, and understand how algorithms are trained, and more importantly, to understand what those limitations are, um, because I think it's really critical that they understand how to recognize those big issues that you've mentioned, like algorithmic bias, model overfitting, and some of that external validity challenge that you just mentioned with that Stanford study. Thank you, Alex. I think this is very insightful. And I would double down on the point of physicians need to understand the basics of AI, because I think we need to shift perhaps our perspective and how we evaluate these algorithms as well, because I think we're still evaluating complex machine learning algorithms in the same way that we evaluate simple and basic uh, statistical tools. And I'm specifically speaking here about external validation. When we develop a statistical tool, we develop it on a specific patient population, and then we expect it to generalize across all different patient populations. But with AI, that's actually not really possible because AI is a very powerful correlator. So it would learn specifics of a particular patient population. It would achieve much better performance than a basic statistical tool. But that means when you apply it to a new population, you would need to do fine tuning to achieve that similar level of performance. So I think we need a framework shift in terms of how we think about validating these algorithms, because I think it's a utopian future to say that we can train our algorithm on Harvard medical school affiliated hospitals data and then we can apply it na nationally that just would not work and so like no matter how we try and we just need to shift like how we approach and scale these algorithms but really appreciate this conversation it's been amazing from my side and i'm going to shift the mic over to shad so shad over to you thank you alex this has been a fascinating conversation so far i've been taking notes i've been learning a lot myself so really appreciate the discussion I wanted to quickly reflect on a couple of things that you mentioned, Alex. Uh, I love the notion of sort of marketing AI and, and be doing a better job of getting clinicians on board. It's so, so important because, you know, we, as along with the patients and society, are the major stakeholders of, of this technology, at least in the clinical context. And so putting it out there that it's complementary rather than replacing clinicians is incredibly important. And I love what you said about, uh, you know, figure out what clinicians don't like doing or figure out what clinicians or humans broadly are not good at, focus on that uh, rather than all the stuff that clinicians actually enjoy doing. I, I really think that's very insightful and companies uh, would be wise to actually notice. The other thing I wanted to mention is from the other side, it does bear mentioning that clinicians also need to open up, open themselves up to the possibility that AI can have in the in the clinical context. I know that this is sometimes tough, especially for clinicians of an older generation, and completely understood why. You know, through our work with digital therapeutics, we've reached out to a lot of clinicians, and some have actually said that they don't believe in AI in, in the clinical context, and and so they've totally sort of set that aside. Again, part of that could be just marketing and could be fixable, but part of it, I think, is opening ourselves up as a profession to the technology. And, and, and so I think it goes both ways. There needs to be a meeting of the minds and, and figure out where AI can actually be uh, helpful for us as clinicians, to society, and to our patients. So really love those points that you made, Alex. Let's shift gear a little bit to talking about health insurance uh, companies. You know, I'd be curious to hear about your trends about trends that you're noticing with health insurance companies and, and what you think it's going to look like in 10 years. I'm especially curious uh, about how health insurance companies view digital solutions down the line. I ask because, as you know, so much has happened in this space. Digital therapeutics came to be just around 10 years ago. Express Scripts and CVS, Caremark, 
started the first two digital formularies just a couple of years ago in 2019. And we had Steve Miller, who uh, just retired as the CMO of Cigna Express Scripts, uh, talking about sort of that transformation that took place a couple of years ago. Um, so if you could just broadly talk about, you know, your work at, at Humana, trends you've noticed in the health insurance space, and, and specifically, if you can, talk about how digital solutions fit in at that vision. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think in the healthcare business, keeping people healthy is what saves money and ultimately improves the bottom line. I think it turns out that this alignment of incentives is good for patients as well, since it's wholly in their interest to stay healthy. Um, But I think more and more, we realize that the traditional health insurance model isn't fully reaching its potential to keep people healthy. And I think that is what we're going to see evolve in the health insurance market in the next couple of years to 10 years. And I think one, uh, one big part of that is we now know that healthcare is a minority component of what drives people's health. You know, there are so many other social factors that drive health in more impactful ways, including education, income, housing situations, environmental exposures, diet, lifestyles, you know, a number of things. And these are collectively known as social determinants of health. You may hear that term. And I think we'll see greater investment in some of these healthcare adjacent social determinants of health, um, like diet, lifestyle, healthy behaviors um, by encouragement from health insurers. And I think additionally, to further align incentives with patients, uh, value-based insurance design is something that I'm hoping will pick up steam. Essentially, what this does is it makes it easier and cheaper for patients to do the things that they should be doing to keep healthy. So an example of this would be to cover insulin for diabetic patients at a very low cost sharing level to incentivize them filling the prescription and using that prescription to prevent the sequelae of poorly managed diabetes from manifesting. So that obviously is kind of generally speaking a more expensive thing to cover things like renal failure and dialysis or an ICU stay from DKA. And I think additionally, um, for too long, insurance companies have had this adversarial relationship with physicians and the delivery side of healthcare. And I think, you know, we're, I'm, ta- I'm talking about aligning incentives and to align incentives better between these two entities, I think you're going to see more risk sharing, uh, such as with value-based care and efforts to really change this dynamic of to becoming one of more of a partnership. Um, and I think to wholly align incentives, you may start to see more vertical integration or combined large-scale para-provider organizations. But uh, to, to kind of get at your question of digital solutions, I really see the adoption of digital health kind of being at the bottom flat part of the S-curve. You know, I think we've seen in other industries that people are comfortable and happy to use digital solution for any number of daily transactions. And I think that has uh, been particularly true in finance, where this Uh, Focus on accuracy and privacy is just as critical as it is in healthcare. Um, But where I think I see the takeoff of digital solutions uh, in health taking off first, kind of in the short term, is really in some of this mundane stuff, the account maintenance stuff, and then maybe moving on to the experience side of the equation. I think areas that are more similar to how people are already accustomed to transacting in other parts of their lives through digital means And I think as people get more comfortable with that and kind of develop this trust in digital and health, then we're going to start seeing that we're moving up this inflection, the upward inflection of the S-curve for actual kind of digital therapeutics, medical management type uses. 
That's very insightful, Alex. I think that's exactly right because you can sort of intuitively understand that the barrier for digital therapeutics is slightly different than for maybe digital diagnostics or for AI in in radiology. You, you know, how close is it to the patient? Or is it actually therapy or are you optimizing therapy or is it just diagnosing the patient? And so I think there's a thread there where as we become more and more comfortable with digital technology a little bit further away from the patient, it's going to get closer and closer and closer to the patient and to, and, and to providers, uh, eventually culminating in digital therapies. Again, it's never going to replace drugs. It's not meant to. But I think in a certain context, uh, digital therapies, whether it's digitized CBT or serious games, as I'm sure you're aware of with Achille Therapeutics and ADHD, those will become an additional portion of the armamentarium of clinicians to deploy when it's actually needed. So really like that insight there. Wanted to sort of touch base and shift the discussion towards the pandemic right now and some of the work that you've done during the pandemic you know, when the pandemic hit, Alex, in March uh, or even a little bit earlier of 2020, you were serving as the chief of radiology uh, at a hospital in the in the Bay Area, as I understand. While that was a chaotic time for all of us, it was particularly traumatizing for healthcare workers and first responders. I worked for the first six months uh, of the pandemic in a hospital, often taking care of, you know, very sick COVID patients, and so I saw some of it upfront and kudos to to you and and my colleagues who have worked through the entire pandemic. I mean, there's a lot of burnout there that was associated. Uh, and when I was still working, people were talking about healthcare heroes. That that seems to have sort of gone away. And, and now what we're left with is, is just the tough conditions. I'm curious about your experience there. I understand that after you shared your COVID experiences with some of your business school classmates, a bunch of you joined together to form an initiative called the First Wave to tackle the PPE shortage across the country. Really amazing initiative. And the initiative ended up raising over $200,000 and more than 300,000 masks for hospitals around the country. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that initiative came to be, what problems it was trying to overcome, and what did this experience teach you about the current healthcare system? Yeah, th- thanks for that question. Um, the the both of you went to, to business school. And so, you know, we all go to business school for different reasons um, and kind of get different things out of it. But I think for me, one of the best things to have come out of business school was this network of passionate, capable, and out-of-the-box thinking people that I get to meet and develop relationships with. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, I was working at the front lines of the hospital. You know, there was so much fear, uncertainty, and chaos. And our supply chains were woefully inadequate to provide personal protective equipment to our frontline clinical staff and patients, and our caretakers were getting sick taking care of COVID patients. And so after talking to my classmates about some of the challenges we were seeing, they they jumped in, they took initiative, and they launched this international effort to provide PPE to our frontline staff. Um, the effort essentially started as a fundraising drive, ended up kind of becoming more of a supply chain logistics challenge, and then became an international logistics challenge with not only sourcing issues um, in light of kind of the sheer limited availability uh, of supply, but also customs and import challenges. And then ended up becoming more of a kind of market maker challenge of us trying to connect the the need with the supply that we got. And as you mentioned, uh, this effort was ultimately named the first wave. It uh, raised more than $200,000, provided more than 300,000 pieces of PPE, and we got that across more than 60 clinical sites and hospitals across 15 states. And you know, this is an effort that I'm really proud of. 
Uh, it's been recognized by the media, even turned into a children's book, interestingly. Um, but, you know, the other part of your question, uh, one thing I learned about the healthcare system is really the tremendous amount of stringent bureaucracy that exists that is pretty inflexible, even in the most dire of circumstances. You, know, you find obstacles to getting the job done without some sort of regulatory or compliance hurdle. And so for us, uh, it turns out it was actually harder to get the PPE into the hands of the people that needed it rather than getting the PPE. Um, at first, you know, the hospital and administration didn't know how to manage you know, getting free PPE because it was outside of our traditional standard supply chain processes. And so they weren't willing to use it. You know, they had concerns about the quality of the product. They were worried about the liability associated with it. And um, it turns out, you know, there was some backdoor way in which we can get the PPE in, which was basically, you know, if an employee or worker brought in their own PPE, it was fine. And so I literally, you know, took the PPE directly to the clinicians, to our hospitalists, to our ICU and ER staff, uh, who, of course, you know, gladly used them in lieu of having nothing at all or reusing PPE that was tattered and falling apart. Thankfully, after you know a short amount of time, the hospital did recognize that this was better than the alternative, and government also relaxed some of its policies. And uh, luckily, soon we had a passable amount of PPE. And uh, as networks of hospitals started to try and kind of coordinate our PPE demands with the no donations that we were getting from all over, we were able to start to kind of donate our PPE wider and wider and starting to form our own networks uh, for how we could get those PPE into those with even dire, more dire needs than, than we were saying. That's a fascinating story, Alex. I'm glad it has a happy ending because, you know, if it didn't, it it would be sort of kind of hair raising because, you know, I understand during normal times why that level of bureaucracy is needed because you want to protect quality. Uh, I don't think anyone reasonable is sort of arguing against getting rid of those rules. But I think what we're saying broadly, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, being flexible during times of crisis and adapting quickly is really what's needed. And sometimes I think it's hard for large organizations to actually do that. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that they came around and, and you were able to provide all of that PPE. That's really amazing. We're just finishing up here, Alex. This has been such a great conversation. One question I had is, you know, as someone who's passionate about creating change in the healthcare world, like you, Alex, uh, and one that's had quite the experience in areas beyond clinical medicine. What advice would you give our audience members as to how to think differently about their career trajectories? And how can MDs reject the old stereotype of an MD career and sort of move past it or move beyond it and, and scale that ambition? Yeah, I, I that love that question. I think that is path. really the essence of why um, you have this podcast and why people are listening. And you know, I meet and talk with a lot of physicians who are interested in non-clinical work. I think, kind of thinking more broad, broadly, careers are changing, including in medicine. I think people are no longer interested in just doing schooling and then training and finishing and then doing the same thing for 30 years. You know, I think they want to continue to evolve and do different things during their career span. You know, they want to impact healthcare in different ways. And I think that's a good thing. I think we need to do whatever we can to support professional satisfaction and career longevity, particularly given the burnout that that we just alluded to. I think to stay relevant, you often need to continue to reinvent yourself even long after your formal training. And I think as a profession, um, and th this goes back to Alex, your point about kind of our educational system, uh, I think as a profession, we really need to think more broadly about what it is a physician can do. And I think 
part of that process involves us being willing to give each other this permission space and the support in getting outside of that comfort zone of the clinic. You know, I think we should be cheering on our colleagues who end up as leaders in health systems, as executives in payer organizations, those who run for elected office, those who become tech company founders, those that are investors. And it really does make me mad when I hear other doctors discount the work of our non-clinical doctor colleagues because you know they kind of see it as a us versus them sort of mentality. Um, I personally want to see doctors involved in these other roles because I know that when clinicians are involved in those leadership roles, they're going to bring to those roles kind of this ethical North Star that is focused on the patient and their health. And I think they'll bring to these roles the right kind of scientific and intellectual rigor, this kind of evidence-based mentality, and I think real-world perspective of what is workable in the trenches. And I think doing all of this is really important to our profession, growing in impact and influence. Um, But I also know it will lead us to doing the right thing in healthcare. Um, But I think kind of uh, narrowing down in scope, kind of talking about individuals who might be interested in doing this. I think, you know, individuals who want to extend outside of clinical practice, I, I, I want to kind of be honest about it. It can be pretty tough to do. You know, you've trained for years to be a clinician. There's a certain amount of inertia and gravity that holds you in those roles, and it can be hard to break out of them. And so I've talked to a lot of people who've made that move and all have said the same thing, that it, it was tough for them, but none of them have regretted it. And so I would recommend you trying to reach out to a lot of different people who have contemplated this, who've done it, um, whether they've been successful or not, since I think there is really no singular path like there is for going to medical school, then doing your training, then going out into practice. You know, I think the rest of the career world is so much more windy of a road than we're accustomed to in medicine. And so, you know, one piece of advice is that you've got to be ready to become uncomfortable. You've also got to be humble. You know, no one is going to put you on some pedestal because you're a doctor. And I think you really have to go in with humility and act as if you kind of really know nothing about that adjacent field that you're trying to go into and really go into it with a genuine curiosity and willingness to learn. And I think, quite honestly, the hard part is not necessarily convincing yourself that you can do this. It's actually convincing others that you're someone who can do more than clinical. I think oftentimes that means someone has to take a chance on you. And so I think networking is really important to help facilitate that. I think other times it means doing things to not just learn, uh, but also to signal to the market that you're capable of this non-clinical work. And so I don't think that that necessarily has to be something huge. I think even a small step or project is a big signal. And I think, you know, just kind of to make it more practical, you can take on a project in your current job that is non-clinical in nature that could give you the experience to build on, um, that could give you something to talk to hiring managers about for the next role that you're looking at. You know, you might even consider doing it for free or do some bartering, basically trade them some clinical expertise on that project for an opportunity to be a part of that team, kind of working on something you'd like to know more about, whether it's a new product, new service, new technology. Um, And, you know, I would just say that you'd be surprised how persistent you might have to be and that you you may get some rejections that you might not used to. And so take that rejection in stride, keep trying different avenues. Um, But I think you'll you'll be pleased to know that I think once you get that first non-clinical role, you'll find that things start to snowball because you have shown that you can 
break out of that inertia of only being a clinician. Thank you, Alex. That's really, really great insight. And that pretty much really nicely summarizes everything I've learned in the last two years at an MBA. I, I didn't even have to come to HBS. I should have just gone to you, Alex, two years ago. But no, really, really... Would have saved you some tuition. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, but I wanted to reflect on a couple of things you mentioned. You used the networking. Networking is very, very important in the context of uh, an MBA. And a lot of people especially clinicians don't quite appreciate that. And, and I think it's important to actually double down on that because I think of it as, as a chemical reaction. And we talked about that in the last episode, right? If your goal is to get stuff done, uh, networking and having a network lowers the energy of activation significantly because you can try, you know, for days or weeks to call a bunch of different places if you need to get to someone and you might not even succeed. But if you know someone who knows that person, then that's a five minute phone call, right? And people who are network really are at an advantage, a structural advantage to get a lot of stuff done. But you don't have to go to Wharton or you don't have to come to HBS to get the network. There's many ways to actually do so. And our last guest, Shiv Gaglani, who's actually the CEO and founder of Osmosis, which is the medical education platform that, that tons of medical students around the country and now nursing students and pharmacy students use. He has a very cool mnemonic called CARE, C-A-R-E. The C represents uh, curiosity, A is appreciation, R is remembering, and then E is engaging. He says if you use these four different things, use it when you're actually networking. Like Be curious about what other people are working on, reach out to them, appreciate what they're doing, down the line, remember that they, you know, give you a certain time and pass it forward and then engage with community. So there's many ways to actually build that network without going to, you know, a school or relying on your uh, particular school or anything like that. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is the us versus them mentality that often exists in the clinical realm. I think that's absolutely right. I was talking to a friend the other day who happens to have an MD MBA and he is a first year resident now. I won't mention where, but he mentioned that when he was applying to residency, he had to downplay the fact that he had an MBA because some folks thought that that was actually a crutch, that it either meant that you were going to be distracted or you were going to come for their jobs or, or all these wild, crazy things because all he wanted to do was just use his MBA to make patients' lives better and, and just think about the problem from a different perspective. But I think less so, but not a lot of people still appreciate that within the clinical context. So really, really appreciate those points, Alex. Uh, and, and again, this was a truly fascinating conversation. And I just wanted to finish off by asking you, you know, how can our audience members learn more about what you do and follow the impact that you've had? Yeah, thanks again for, for letting me join you today. You know, just to go back on your last point about networking and how some people think it might be a, you know, a dirty word or something that, you know, they don't really think uh, they should be engaging with. And, you know, to that remark, I would say, don't think about it as, you know, quote unquote, networking. Think of it as developing relationships. You know, I think as a doctor, you inherently know how important relationships are, whether that is with your colleagues, especially colleagues you trust uh, for consultation uh, that you would send your patients off to. But I think also relationships with your patients. You understand how important uh, those relationships are and that there can be therapeutic value in that. And I think for that reason, you know, don't think of it as networking. Think about it as developing relationships and how 
uh, how those relationships can be of you know, value to, uh, to, to both, both, uh, both people that are involved. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll just conclude by saying, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to join you today. It's, it's really been fun. Uh, I really love to help other physicians figure out how to do what they want to do and to really experience professional satisfaction, whether that is in clinical practice or, you know, something that is non-clinical in nature or being all over the place like me. You know, I, I like to share my story and give advice for when people ask for it. Um, there isn't necessarily anything that I have uh, for for anyone to follow what I'm up to other than uh, my LinkedIn or Twitter pages, which um, you're more than welcome to reach out to me on. You know, I'm not out for the publicity per se, but I'm always happy to, to share my perspective. For me, I have found that it was challenging to break out, break out of that clinical mold. And it was really, really helpful to, to talk with people about how, uh, how they started their journeys. And so I love to connect, meet people, chat with them, um, because I've found on multiple occasions, again, you know, it's not networking, it's developing relationships. You never know when you start those conversations. You never know when that might lead to the next collaboration or opportunity. And that to me is, is super fun and exciting. No, completely agreed, Alex. And, and, and what a great note to actually end on. Uh, once again, thank you so much for joining us uh, and uh, chat soon. Thank you, Alex. Thanks so much. Wow, what a fascinating conversation with Alex today. I really, really enjoyed that and so many takeaways, but I just wanted to briefly talk about the importance of clinical mentors. You know, we, as physicians, whether we're still in clinical medicine or we've left clinical medicine, some of our earliest and most transformative mentors will be clinical mentors, folks within the hospital setting or the medical school setting. And these folks have an important role to play in the trajectory of our lives. A lot of clinical mentors have a very broad understanding of what success means, and they'll provide advice accordingly. Especially in the Boston, SF, New York ecosystem, you always run into docs who themselves have done really, really interesting things, and that inspires you to wanna go off the beaten path, right? To have a broader understanding of what success actually means. Alex talks about scaling impact beyond what you can do by just, you know, seeing patients every day. Again, very, very noble profession and incredibly important, but uh, the scale of the impact can be even more magnified if you uh, brought in your, your scope of what success actually means. And, and so clinical mentors can play a very, very important role at that. And not a lot of people, even now, have clinical mentors who are very supportive of us taking the road less traveled. We've talked to some of our guests, you know, who are maybe in their 50s or 60s, who did medical school and residency a few decades ago. A lot of them have said that they didn't have any clinical mentors that supported them. Thankfully, that has started to change, but I just implore the, the mentors that are out there or the ones that will become mentors in the next five to 10 years, don't impress upon other people what your understanding of success or impact actually means. Try to open yourself up to, to the different broad domains that we talk about during this podcast. Um, and I think that's happening more and more, but we still have a long way to go. So I just wanted to point out how important clinical mentors can be in all of our lives and what, what a strategic role they can play in helping doctors really rethink what it means to be doctors in the 21st century. Uh, over to you now, Alex. Thank you, Shad. That's a great takeaway. And I guess takeaway from my side is around the 
the signaling point that Alex talked about. I think it is a very powerful abstract first principle. And what I mean by that is that it's a principle that is very widely applicable to different situations in life and in, in business in general. And the idea there is that you can always increase the efficiency of transactions between entities and individuals and individuals themselves by reducing the risk of that transaction through external signaling. What I mean by that is if you're a startup founder that has found founded a company before and that company was successful, it will be much easier for you to raise money from VCs because your external signaling to the market is strong and that you've proven success before. And this reduces the risk that a venture capital firm would take on you by funding you. The same thing happens when, say, a physician wants to go outside of the beaten path because if you want to seek an opportunity uh, that is outside the direct clinical path, someone has to take a bet on you by giving you that opportunity. And there is a transition of value that is happening. You're promising that entity or that individual to contribute value through your work, and they're promising you back uh, that job opportunity, financial reimbursement, or experience reimbursement. And that transaction includes a risk. Um, and I think it it is very efficient to think about how signaling can reduce the perceived risk from their side. And I think signaling can be achieved, as Alex mentioned, by doing internships during medical school and uh, various uh, industries that you're potentially interested in. It can be achieved by doing projects within the specific discipline that you're interested in, or it can be achieved by being up to date that discipline and being able to have a very intelligent and informed conversation. And I think this is really important because it's kind of a framework shift that if you adopt it, it means that you can technically pursue career trajectories that seem very far away and very unattainable if you're really deliberate in terms of the strategy and the signaling and the skill sets that you build along the way. And so I just wanted to reflect on this point because I found it very useful and applicable to a lot of situations. But generally, this was a fascinating conversation with Alex today. For the audience out there, join us for our next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who ventured outside of the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP podcast and to catch our latest episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And to always get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. And if you have any feedback, any recommendations, any guest suggestions, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. See you next time.